Please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. And in just a few moments, we will begin reading from verse 13. Mark chapter 2 and verse 13. <clears throat> Have you ever found yourself becoming increasingly frustrated because you are being repeatedly challenged by questions which are obviously designed to find fault with you. Fault with what you are doing or perhaps fault with what you are not doing. You ever been in that position? For a while, you're okay. But eventually the repetition of these sour questions gets to you. And you just want to blurt out and say something like, will you please quit asking me dumb questions? You have an attitude. All of your questions are designed to find fault with me. I'm tired of your stupid questions. Leave me alone for Pete's sake. Go get a life. Now I know none of you would ever be so unsanctified as to actually be tempted to say anything like that, but one of your pastors is. And by the way, I haven't been bombarded recently with stupid questions, so I'm not um, trying to vent something here and use the pulpit to hide behind a troubled emotion. I want to suggest to you, dear people, that surely our Lord must have at least been tempted to have a similar outburst of emotion. Because He was tempted in all points as we are. In all points as we are. His whole ministry was characterized by such harassment. Especially, even as Jason reminded us this morning, from the scribes and Pharisees and lawyers and Herodians. Do you know what? He never lost it. His indignation was always righteous. His enemies, I'm sure, found themselves asking these sour questions only to be frustrated by the way he responded. And I submit to you, according to the title of my sermon this morning, that we have a sweet sovereign who had to answer sour questions. Now, what do I mean by a sweet sovereign? Isn't that sort of a strange way to describe the Lord of glory? Well, I don't mean in any way to imply that our Lord and our Savior was a sort of effeminate man. In no way He was a real man in every respect. Even in this passage that we're going to study, He must have had a strong voice in order to preach to great multitudes out in the open. He was a real man. But what I mean by sweet, not effeminate, not soft, but self-controlled and always gracious. Though His answers cut right to the conscience, He always maintained what we could call a sweet spirit. Well, that's what happens in our text this morning. Three times he was questioned in a critical way, in a way designed to undermine his character, his orthodoxy, his ministry, his influence. In one case, technically you could say that the question was directed to his disciples, but really they were going after their Savior. And it was asked in his hearing... And it was designed to undermine his character and therefore his ministry. Why? Why, they ask a second time. Why, they ask a third time. Three different situations, three different whys. Last Lord's Day, we saw one of those whys. And I doubt if you have to, you may have to turn your page just once, but if you notice verse 7 of this same second chapter, he says to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? And the reason why he 
asked them that in verse 8 was because of what it says in verse 7. Their question was, why does this man speak like that? And now, this morning, we find more whys being asked of our Savior. Three of them as we complete chapter 2. The first one is found in verse 16. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? The second one is found in verse 18. Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? The third question is found in verse 24. Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Three questions. Now you would hope that after finding out in our passage last week that Jesus knew the very thoughts of their hearts, He could say to them, why are you thinking that? I know what you're thinking. You're sitting there thinking that I'm blaspheming. And they hadn't uttered a single syllable out loud, having discovered that He knew the very thoughts of their hearts. And after seeing Him raise a paralytic by simply saying, get up, take your bed, and go home. And the paralytic gets up, takes his bed and goes home. Wouldn't you think, wouldn't you think that the scribes and Pharisees would find that their hearts were softening just a little? Just a little? But no. Their hearts were getting harder and harder and harder. In fact, when we come to next week's passage, which Jonathan will be preaching on, we will notice in chapter 3 and verse 6, that the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. First, they just have evil thoughts of him in their hearts. Then they find the courage to articulate those thoughts with their mouths. And then they actually begin to plot and plan how to kill him. And eventually they succeed under the superintending providence of God in doing that very thing. Their hearts are getting harder and harder And harder. And there's a lesson here, isn't there? Our greatest need, dear people, if we're unconverted, is never more evidence of the truth of Christianity. Never more evidence that God exists and that Jesus is the Son of God and that the Bible is true. No. Our greatest need, if we're unconverted, is more humility, more tenderness, more vulnerability, more self-awareness. And I just want to say to all of you who remain unconverted in this church and under this ministry that it's very easy to become gospel-hardened. And your pastors feel that many of you, particularly the young people, are gospel-hardened. You have heard it over and over and over and over, and you're sick of it. And guess what? You're not just as bad off as you used to be a year ago, you're worse off, even though you don't know it. You're more hardened. Well, let's look at our passage this morning and draw some practical lessons from our sweet sovereign's answer to sour questions. Incident number one, we find in verses 13 through 17. Let me just read it and comment on it as I go along. He went out again beside the sea. Remember he had been in the home. There was such a crowd. Perhaps he wanted a little freedom, a little fresh air to get in the outdoors. And still he can't get away from people. The crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them because he loved to teach and he loved to preach. And he knew that they needed the truth. And perhaps at the end of some of his teaching, as he continued to walk, we read this in verse 14. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, just a word about tax collectors before I comment on how amazing this was, which I just read. Tax collectors were the scum of the earth. Tax collectors were the most shady of people. They always were grouped with sinners, sinners and tax collectors, tax collectors and sinners. And by the way, sinners weren't just prostitutes. 
sinners in the eyes of the Pharisees were any who did not come into obedience to all of their rabbinical, rabbis were teachers, all of their rabbinical instructions as to how God's law was actually to be worked out in life. And if you didn't conform to their understanding of how you should live according to their explanation of God's law, you were a sinner. But tax collectors were real sinners. They were known for betraying their nation. First of all, they worked for the Roman Empire who exacted taxes from the Jews. And they were known for extorting and taking more taxes than they were supposed to. And they were very rich. They were the scum of the earth. They were like the porno public publishers of our day. How do you feel about I want to introduce to you a gentleman. His job is to publish pornography. You say, what? He's a wretch. That's how people felt about tax collectors, particularly if they were Jewish. And probably Matthew was a somewhat abandoned young man because in order to even give yourself to that occupation, you didn't care about what people thought about you. And we find our Savior walking by his toll booth, which was right there near the lake, because perhaps he had to exact taxes on the fishermen when they brought their fish to shore. It was also a very famous trade route between Syria and Egypt. At any rate, it was his job to collect taxes. And we find our Savior walking by him, this social outcast, this man who had a disreputable vocation, and he just says to him, follow me. And we read, as was read by Jason again in the Luke account, that he immediately followed him, and I hope you heard or noticed that it says in Luke that he left everything. He left everything and immediately followed his Savior. What is Jesus doing? Well, he's putting together his dream team. He's... Uh, choosing 12 men. So far, we've seen in the Gospel of Mark that he has four. The fact of the matter is, if we compare accounts with accounts, he actually had added two more. He had added Philip and Nathaniel, we find from John's Gospel. But the four that we knew about, Peter and Andrew, James and John, fishermen. And now he chooses a tax collector. And I want to say to you, dear folks, isn't this really encouraging, actually? It's encouraging. These men and the others that he chooses are going to turn the world upside down. And they're going to become the foundation of the church. The apostles. With Christ being the cornerstone. And who does he choose? He starts with four fishermen. Probably uneducated. And then he chooses a man who is known to be a social outcast. We must never, ever forget the words of the Apostle Paul. I'm just going to read them to you very quickly, although just so that you might take note, they're found in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 and following. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Here's the reason. So that no human being might boast in the presence of of God. There's something encouraging about our Savior choosing these men, and it ought to give us great hope, especially if we are still unconverted. Jesus was not putting his trust in the arm of flesh. The Lord Jesus was putting his trust in his own omnipotent arm of divinity in choosing such men. But notice, notice the omnipotent the omnipotence and the irresistibility of Christ's call. What did Matthew do? He immediately 
rose and followed him. How do you explain that? He gave up all of his riches. He gave up his lucrative vocation. There's only one explanation. It is sovereign, efficacious, big word, which just means powerful, can bring to pass what it wants to do. Sovereign, efficacious grace. One of the old writers, some of my fellow pastors know who this dear man was. His name was Bishop Hall. He puts it like this. Oh, strange election of Christ. That word was enough, follow me, spoken by the same tongue that said to the corpse at Nain, Young man, I say to you, arise. He that said at first, let there be light, says now, follow me. That power sweetly inclines, which could forcibly command. And on he goes, talking beautifully about the power of Christ. And dear friends, this is our hope with regard to the salvation of our loved ones. Only He can call effectually. Many of you have been called outwardly. Some of you need to be called by this efficacious call. And when Christ calls sinners to Himself, He extends power, even as He did when He called Lazarus to come out of the tomb. Well, we've seen this efficacious power already in the choosing of the previous four disciples. And we won't look at them again. But I just remind you, dear people, that there's a king walking on the beach. And there is a kingdom which has arrived. At least the now part of it has arrived. There's a not yet part, but the now part has arrived. And as we have seen repeatedly, this king demonstrates his sovereignty in the way he calls disciples, in the way he teaches truth, in the way he expels demons, in the way he... Heals diseases in the way He forgives sins. And I'm going to suggest that today we see His sovereignty in the way He answers scoffers. So let's quickly look at what happened after Matthew was called. We, we see that in verses 13 and 14. What did He do? Well, He threw a party. He threw what some have called a Matthew party. It's Luke that tells us that it was really Matthew who had Jesus in his home for this, for this honor of a dinner. And Luke also tells us that it was a great feast. Mark doesn't say that it was a great feast. Luke tells us that it was a large company. We are told by all three of the Gospels that it was made up especially of sinners and many, many tax collectors. Doubtless, Matthew did this out of love for Christ. And surely he did this out of love for his lost friends. Wasn't that a beautiful scene? Wouldn't it have been wonderful to be there in that home and to see what we would consider to be something very wonderful, what the Pharisees hated. Jesus sitting around a table, perhaps on the floor, according to the culture of their days, the house filled with tax collectors who were known, like Matthew was known, for their sinful way of living and for their unjust ex, uh, taking monies that did not belong to them, and our Savior eating with them. What a beautiful sight. You know, I think this is something we ought to think about doing. What's that, Pastor Ted? Hosting a sinner's dinner? A sinner's dinner. <laughs> we're just going to invite lost people over. And we're not going to just feed them. We're going to have a Matthew stand up and give his testimony. Or maybe we'll have a Mary give her testimony. And then we're going to introduce our friends at this dinner to the Savior. Matthew was compelled to tell his friends about his new Savior. And so he has this dinner. It's beautiful. And I would suggest that we think about doing that. But I need to get to the sour question. We haven't gotten to the sour question. It's in verse 16. I know I've already read it to you. And I want us to see the, 
the wonderful answer that came. What was the question? The question was, why does he eat, Jesus, your master? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, the scribes and Pharisees didn't have the guts to uh, ask Jesus that question directly. Perhaps part of their motive was to undermine his disciples' respect for their master. But he hears their question. I don't know if he was within what we would call earshot or if he hears, you know, supernaturally as he looked into their hearts in last week's passage. But in either case, he sees that at the root of that question is a kind of, what's wrong with your master? Why would he defile himself by eating with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus, as it were, says, excuse me, I'd like to answer that question. The answer is very simple. I'm a physician. I'm a doctor of souls. And here we find our Savior giving to us in a very self-conscious and deliberate and intentional way a disclosure, a revelation of who He is and what He had come to do. The answer is beautiful. It's found in verse 19. He says, excuse me, it's found in verse 17. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I'm here on a mission. I'm here as a physician. I care about sin-sick souls. What a beautiful answer to a sour question. What a sweet sovereign to answer that way. Well, dear people, I'm here to say to you this morning that if you're sick, if you're soul sick, there's a doctor in the house. And this doctor, Dr. Jesus Christ, is 100% accurate in all of his diagnoses. Always. And he's 100% effective in all of his healing. Now, I'm talking about spiritual healing right now. Even though he invaded history as it is and proved that the kingdom of God had come into history and did physical healings to show what someday he will do for all who are truly redeemed, they all got sick again sooner or later and died. But I'm talking about spiritual healing, and I'm saying to you, that this physician of the soul, once he heals you, you are healed forever. There is no return of the cancer. It's always sad, isn't it, when we hear someone say, well, her cancer came back. She lived eight years free of cancer, but it came back. The cancer of unforgiveness never, ever comes back in the case of those whom Jesus Christ heals. But I also want to remind you that He can do you no good if you are well. You must be sick. You see what he said? I came not to call the righteous. If you think you're righteous, I have nothing for you at the moment. Until you realize that you are not really righteous, but that you are guilty of self-righteousness, I have nothing for you. I came down for sinners. And by the way, when he says, I came not to call the righteous but sinners, once again, Luke adds what Mark doesn't include, namely, to repentance. To repentance. I came to call not the righteous but sinners to repentance. (laughs) And so, I remind us this morning... That if we are ever to get help from the Lord Jesus Christ, we must turn from our sins and we must call upon Him and we must believe upon Him. The beautiful thing is that He really will be gracious to the self-righteous as well because we were all self-righteous at one point and yet we sit here this morning saved, healed. So don't just think of the father of one son, the prodigal, who lived in immorality, but think of the loving father of another son who was self-righteous 
And our Savior will save the self-righteous, but He won't save them while they live in their self-righteousness. Well, let's quickly hurry to incident number two. So that's question number one, and I would just remind you that in answer, He presents Himself as the great physician. Incident number two, verses 18 through 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people... Who are these people? Matthew tells us that they were John's disciples. Came to him. Sour question number two. Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, there's something wrong with this question. There may have been some genuineness in it, but surely there's something wrong in it. Surely there's some pride, some envy, some self-righteousness. Why do we have to do this and your disciples don't do that? Maybe the implication is your disciples aren't really as godly as we are. They're not as rigorous. They're not as self-denying. They're not as aesthetic, aesthetic as we are. What's wrong with your disciples? How do they get away with this? And Jesus gives them an answer to their question. But the first thing I want to remind you all of is that There was only one command in the entirety of the Old Testament which required fasting. Some of you know which one it was. If we had time, I would like to draw you out. But the answer is, it was uh, the Day of Atonement. And you read about it in uh, three or four passages of the Old Testament. Only one place. Leviticus 16, Numbers 29, just in case you're interested. But how does Jesus answer their question? Why aren't your disciples fasting? Well, he answers in two ways. And in essence, his answer is this, first of all. Such an outward form of um, symbolic expression of the soul would be very inappropriate at this present time for the inward emotion of my disciples. Now, maybe that sounds a little complex, so let me put it like this. Jesus cut to the quick. He never believed that outward forms should be meaningless. He, wouldn't, he refused to separate outward forms from the inward feeling and emotion which should have been expressed. So, a lot of fasting was purely external, and you know how God got after his people in the Old Covenant for that, especially in Isaiah 58. And Jesus is saying, in essence, to these questioners, these these people who had a bad attitude and were, were trying to uh, speak ill of our Savior and His disciples, He says, look, let me just give you an illustration. If your friend is getting married and you've been a, involved to be a part of the wedding party and those festivities are taking place and you are in the presence of the bridegroom himself, How fitting do you think it would be to just uh, kind of blow a whistle and get everybody's attention and say, look, folks, I know this is a pretty happy time, but I just feel like this would be a good time for all of us to fast. Let's all afflict our souls. Let's all get sad. Let's all pray. Let's rule over our appetites. And let's forget about these festivities. This is a good time to fast. They'd say, you're crazy. And Jesus, in essence, is saying to these people, you're crazy. People who are a part of a wedding... Party, don't fast at that time. I am the bridegroom. These are my guests. This is a happy time for them. The day will come, yes, when I will be taken away from them for a while, and then they will fast, and then their hearts will be sad, and it will be a natural fast for them. But that's not now. And by the way, that will pass quickly too. Because after I die and am gone from them for three days and go to my Heavenly Father briefly, I'm going to come back to them. And I'm going to be with them. And then when I do leave them for the whole period of time between my first and second coming, I am going to send my Spirit upon them. And I'm going to be more with them than I've ever been with them. That's not going to be a time for fasting. I probably need to put a little parenthesis in here for a moment and say that I'm not teaching that since Christ has come and died for our sins, Christians shouldn't do any fasting. What I'm teaching, trying to teach, and I believe this is true, 
is that we can no longer fast in the same way and for the same reason. Now perhaps we fast to rule over our appetites because we're so given to self-gratification. Perhaps we fast now because we're just so caught up in this world and we just have to get our minds off of it. Perhaps there's a crisis going on in our lives and in a unique way we feel a desperate need for God's blessing. And it may be that we fast for revival and reformation. I'm not teaching that we don't fast. But we can't fast the way these old covenant religious people fasted in in this sorrow and this sullenness. And Jesus is explaining. And, and so he gives his illustrations. And what are his illustrations? He has two of them. His illustrations are a piece of new cloth, and his illustrations are putting new wine in old skins. And basically, I think what he's simply teaching is, gentlemen, friends, a new day has arrived. I've already been trying to make it clear that the kingdom of God is at hand. Look what I'm doing. I'm speaking to people whose lives have been ravaged by sin, and I'm proving my sovereignty over the devil and my sovereignty over disease. The kingdom of God is in your midst. And someday there will be a perfect and complete redemption of the body as well as the soul. The day has come. The Messiah is on the scene. And you don't take all of the glory and the wonder of this new and beautiful day that has dawned and try to cram it in and run it through the old forms of Judaism and ceremonialism. It just doesn't work. It's like taking a new piece of cloth and sewing it to an old piece of cloth and the new piece of cloth hasn't yet shrunk and when it starts to shrink because it's been washed, it pulls away from the old, it tears. It just doesn't work. If you're going to patch an old piece of cloth, patch it with an old piece of cloth. If you're going to patch a new piece of cloth, patch it with a new piece of cloth. You don't take new wine which is still dynamic and fermenting and putting it in an old skin. It'll burst. You put it in new skins. A new time has come. Not doing away with moral law in any regard. But a new time has come when some of those outward, ritualistic, ceremonial, judicial practices would no longer fit the glory of the new kingdom. That's what Christ is saying in answering His disciples. There is a joy and a delight in the dawning of this day which ought not be forced into and through the rigorous forms of the Old Covenant. The bridegroom is here. I, I don't have time to take you where I'd like to take you. I'd love to show you from John chapter 16, and please resist the temptation to go there. But Jesus says to his disciples, I'm going to go away for a little while, and then I'm coming back. He says, what's that about? He said, you'll understand. I'm going to go to my Father, and then I'm going to come back, and, and I'm going to be with you in a wonderful way. In fact, just before he left his disciples and gives them the Great Commission, what does he say? Lo, I will be with you always. And the whole point, dear people, is that we have the presence of our Savior. We should be joyous people. Fasting should not be the characteristic of our lives. Not in that sense of always being cast down and always humbling and always afflicting ourselves. Yes, in certain ways at certain times, but this is not the time to be sorrowful. It's the time to be joyful. We have our Savior's presence with us, and we have an even greater presence coming. I'm tempted to quote someone that I brought with me into the pulpit. I'm going to resist that temptation as well. But it's, it's a wonderful encouragement for us to practice that sense of the presence of our Savior spiritually through the Holy Spirit and cultivate that communion that we have with Him as our groom and to live in the joy. It's really a beautiful picture. You see, I talked about His self-disclosure a minute ago. And what did he? What word did he use to help us look at him in glory from the first in it? Physician, physician, physician. And now he says, "Let me give you another word. How do you like this one? Bridegroom. Bridegroom. I love my wife. I love my spouse. And as long as you're in the presence of the bridegroom, you have reason to rejoice." 
Well, let's come to incident number three very quickly. It's found in verses 23 through 27. Let me just read. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they began to make their way, his disciples, Matthew tells us, were hungry, hungry, hungry. They began to pluck heads of grain. You know, Kimberly, I want to thank you for doing a beautiful bulletin, and I just asked her if she might do something a little differently this time for some variation. You know, she does. (laughs) I don't know. If you do this on purpose, then I really commend you. She shows, and she probably did because she's such a thinking person, she shows wheat, stalks of wheat with grain. Look at your bulletin. You see what's on those? Heads of grain. Heads of grain. (laughs) Did you know that the Word of God in Deuteronomy 23-25 said, whenever you're going through someone's field, which is a shortcut in the way you travel, they didn't have roads, and you're walking along the side of the field, you're entirely welcome to pluck heads of grain and to eat it. Just make sure you don't have a sickle in your back pocket. Because if you start saying, your friend says, what are you doing? I say, man, you know, we're permitted to take a little grain from, uh, got a big bundle of it here. No, you can't do that. But you can pluck heads of grain. And you know what the disciples were doing? Deuteronomy 23, 25. But here's what's really bad. This is the bad part of what they did, okay? It did take some labor to bend over and pick those up. And it took a little labor to separate the... I don't know if you've ever done this. I do this sometimes when I run in the country. I've stopped and I've, I've pulled the heads of a wheat and I've taken the little wheat things and I've chewed them. And they, it's, it's actually quite good. It starts feeling like gum after a while in your mouth. <laughs> I don't swallow it because I'm not sure how that that wad would digest, but it tastes good. Listen, they were, I'm sure, in the eyes of the Pharisees, already going down the slippery slopes, bending over, picking some of those things off, putting them in their hand, but here's where they really sinned. This is where it really got bad. They went like this, and they rubbed them in their hands. Oh, no, you're threshing. You're threshing the wheat. Listen, folks. Uh, the Old Testament made it very clear that you weren't to harvest on the Sabbath. You weren't to go out with a sickle and do your normal farmer's work. But any time you were hungry and you were walking by, and by the way, I, I guess I'd like to say to the Pharisees, and by the way, how did you get here to see what they're doing? You walked? <gasps> you expended some energy. Shame on you. Don't you know what the Sabbath commandment is? Thou shalt not labor. Didn't you have to use some muscular energy to get here? Shame, shame, shame on you. You know that the only way to spend the Sabbath is to lie in bed all day long and don't even move a finger. I mean, I'm being ridiculous because they were ridiculous. They were ridiculous. They made up all kinds of rules. The beautiful, glorious Sabbath principle, which I want to say more about in a moment, had been ruined. It had been destroyed by their terrible teaching. It had been made laborious and irksome. They made crazy rules like you could only walk X number of feet. God didn't say that. They made up crazy rules like you can eat an egg on the Sabbath as long as you don't fry it. Don't look in a mirror on the Sabbath because you may see a gray hair and be tempted to pluck it. Crazy stuff. It would be as crazy as us taking that beautiful Isaiah 58 passage, which I personally find so helpful in my own governance of the Lord's Day, to say this day, weekends weren't made for Michelob. Weekends were made for God. And I don't want this day to be about me getting to do all the fun stuff I didn't get to do all week. I don't want to seek my own pleasure in that selfish way. I want to seek my own pleasure in delighting in God. Not speaking my own words, talking about all this crazy stuff that we can talk about all week long, when on the Lord's Day we can talk about the Word of God, talk about the cause of God, the kingdom of God, the people of God. Don't seek your own pleasure. That's true. 
So if we wanted to be as ridiculous as the rabbis, we could have said, that means no dessert on Sundays. Uh-oh, you're smiling. You like that pie. You're seeking your own pleasure. You're, you're, you wanted that meal to be delightful. Shameful. You see, I'm making, I'm making fun of what the Pharisees did, what the rabbis did. This was never God's intention. Never. God is a gracious God. God wants His people when they're hungry to be able to eat because there's nothing wrong with that. And so Jesus has to... He has to rebuke these people. And wow, how embarrassing it must have been. Because you know what He said to them? These were, these were really embarrassing words. Verse 25. Have you never read what David did? Hey guys... I thought you were full-time Bible students. Did you forget? Are you upset with what David did? Do you think David did the wrong thing? Do you think God graciously permitted that? Because after all, he didn't break a moral law. He was enjoying the relaxation of a ceremonial, ritualistic law because there was a greater principle at stake. He was on a mission for God, and he and his men were weary and tired and weak and needed refreshment. And he goes into the temple at Nob, and he says, Do you have anything to eat? And the priest says, Why don't you have this bread? It was the custom to lay out 12 loaves of bread, one for each of the tribes, representing the fact that we live on God, and we have fellowship with God, and we are sustained by God. And at the end of every week, those loaves were given to the priests, and they enjoyed them, and they ate them, and they put fresh bread out. And the priest says, Gentlemen, have this bread. You can have this bread. And Jesus said, When's the last time you read your Old Testament? Don't you see the principle? That God is a loving and a kind and a gracious God and never meant for ceremonial, ritualistic laws to confine us and restrict us? When I first started looking at these three incidents, I thought, how can I, how can I describe them? And I, I liked Sinner's Dinner. Sounded good. Sinner's Dinner. I was with Greg Longtime yesterday and just... At that conference, I, he may have seen me. I, I was trying to come up with some other things. You know what? They're a little corny, but they're not way off. Want to hear the second one, which we've already studied? Guests blessed. Jesus says, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast? Sinner's dinner, guests blessed. This one's a little stretch. Needs freed. You need to eat? You're free to eat. You're free to eat. This is our gracious God. And so, that's what Jesus says to them. Now, I want to say something really significant about the Sabbath, and I've got to, I've got to quit soon, okay? I've been looking forward to an opportunity to say something about the Sabbath. I want you to know that we, we are Sabbatarians at Heritage Baptist Church. You know what that means? We believe that the Sabbath principle abides. It was written on stone. And it's a wonderful law. And I want to remind you what Jesus said about it. He said to these Pharisees, you guys have got it all wrong. What you think happened is that on the fifth day of creation, God created the Sabbath And then, on the sixth day of creation, he created man for the Sabbath. So that man could forever be subservient to the Sabbath. No, says Jesus, God is a gracious God. He made the Sabbath for man. And it's a wonderful gift. It's a gift of rest, literally, physically. It's a gift of reflection on the glory of creation. It's a gift of reflection on the wonder of redemption in Exodus. And it's a wonderful, amazing gift in reflecting on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead 
proving that he conquered the devil and sin and death and disease, and that he in principle has obtained for us the final, ultimate rest. And every week of your life you can set aside by my direction a day designed to lose yourself in the wonder of God's redemption, especially the work of Christ on behalf of sinners. And the fact that our eternal Sabbath has been secured. And he says, get together with other Christians on that day. Read and preach and teach and glory in my word on that day. Enjoy fellowship with one another on that day. Talk about the things of God on that day. Whet your appetites with one another about the eternal Sabbath coming. When there will be no more sin, no more sorrow, no more disease, no more war, no more prejudice, no more evil. We'll be completely free. Just Think about these things. Just immerse yourself in these things. Well, but don't you think it would be pretty cool if we could just watch basketball and watch television on that day? Are you kidding in the light of these things? This is a day to delight in for glorious purposes. It's the foretaste of heaven. And I made it for you. I made it for your spiritual refreshment. It's a gift. The Sabbath is the queen of all the days of the week. So it's not about do's and don'ts. It's about a principle. And I want to say to you that I don't think some of you have gotten the principle yet. I'm going to say to you, this is going to be the most... Okay, now Pastor Ted, you're getting sort of... You're getting a little preachy. You're getting a little too close to home. I'm sorry. I love you. Some of you think this is the best day for your kids to play sports? You're going to sign them up for baseball and football and everything else on this day? Are you kidding me? This is the best day to be involved in a play at Davis County High School? You're going to miss church and you're going to go into this foolish entertainment all day or for several hours, sapping your soul and robbing you of the beautiful, wonderful things you heard in the morning at the Word of God. This is the day to do something for the arts in Owensboro? I don't think so. Not when God has said, I give you six days to do all that stuff, but I'm going to give you this wonderful, 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 wonderful privilege to just immerse yourself in God. That's what the day was made for. Please don't grieve the hearts of your pastors and teach your children that the, that the Lord's Day is just another day. You're not sanctifying it if you do that. Please get some guts, Dad. Get some guts and say to your kids, Sorry, son. I know it may cost you playing on the team. Some of you ought to read the letter that Pastor Sam wrote to the coach at Davis County High School. I save it. It's in my file on the Sabbath. It's a gracious letter. His son paid a price. You know why? Because my fellow pastor loves God and His Word and His day better than making his son happy or disappointing somebody else. Would you men please just get some spiritual guts and say, well, I would if I believed it. Well, then why don't you just study it and see if you can figure out what this day is about. It's not about bondage. It's not about legalism. It's about delighting in God with His people. It was made for man, not for Israel. For man! Man Kind. And finally, Jesus says, By the way, having introduced myself as physician and bridegroom, could I also just introduce myself as the Lord of the Sabbath? I own it. I own it. I was there at the dawn of creation. 
I was there at the Exodus. I'm the one that came forth from the tomb. I'm the one who's coming back to take you to the eternal Sabbath. It's my Sabbath. I'm the Lord of it. And do you think I'm going to do away with it in light of what it symbolizes and portrays, how it looks back to creation and back to the Exodus and back to the resurrection and forward to the coming of Christ and the eternal Sabbath? you think I'm going to do away with that? I'm God. Only God can be the Lord of the Sabbath, by the way. You can't be the Lord of the Sabbath unless you're God. No, He's He's here to free us from stupid stuff. From stupid stuff. And He's here to say, fellas, (laughs) eat the grain. Enjoy the grain. Find some sustenance. The Sabbath was never meant to make you miserable. So, I got to quit. Sour questions asked of a sweet sovereign who presents himself as physician, bridegroom, lover of the church, Lord of the Sabbath. Pharisees don't like that kind of a sovereign. I hope you love it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this account that you inspired Mark to record for us so that we could learn more about our great Savior and our great salvation. Lord Jesus, how do we thank you for being the friend of sinners? How do we adequately thank you for being willing to sit down with the likes of us so that we might turn to you as our Savior? We cannot adequately. We thank you that you are a physician, that you are the bridegroom of the church, and that you are the Lord of the Sabbath. Help us to love you the way you deserve to be loved. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm. <clears throat>